Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's special program of the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Dr. Bob Wachter. I'm professor and chair of the Department of Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. And now it's my pleasure to introduce these two uh, gentlemen. Uh, John Micklethwaite is the editor-in-chief of Bloomberg News, and Adrian Wilderidge is the political editor of The Economist. They're co-authors of the new book, The Wake-Up Call, Why the Pandemic Has Exposed the Weakness of the West and How to Fix It. With each passing day, we see new evidence of the degree to which COVID-19 is testing every country in the world. Last week, we had 1 million deaths in the world. Uh, Last week, we had 200,000 deaths in the United States. The toll of COVID has not been uniformly felt around the world, uh, but some countries have done reasonably well, and some countries have done quite poorly. The United States is one of those, has done relatively poorly. And COVID has exposed massive cracks in our political and economic system, some of which are deeply rooted and historical, while others seem unique to the remarkable political moment that we find ourselves in. Obviously, the news of today that the President of the United States has the virus, and as of about five minutes ago, it was reported he's being taken to the hospital, is just further evidence that the threat is ongoing and uh, evidence of the challenges uh, that we're feeling in our political systems. John and Adrian's book begins with a deep and thoughtful exploration of history, how the West ascended through the 20th century and the forces that have challenged that ascent over the past 40 or 50 years. They also chronicle the rise of China, all leading to our current situation in which COVID has challenged our lives and our systems of government. With the indictment of the West and particularly the US is, uh, while the indictment of the US and the West is uh, fervent and depressing, they also outline a detailed plan to ensure that we're better prepared and responsive to any disruptive events in the future. Before becoming editor of Bloomberg, Mr. Micklethwaite served as editor-in-chief of The Economist and has written for the LA Times, the Boston Globe, and the New York Times. Mr. Wildridge is The Economist's political editor and previously its Washington bureau chief and West Coast correspondent. So John and Adrian, welcome so much and uh, really thrilled to be talking to you today. Thank you very much, Bob. Thank you. So uh, the situation with our president is the elephant in the room. Uh, I'm going to uh, show some restraint and hold it to the second question, and then we'll uh, we'll spend some time on on that. It's obviously on everyone's mind. But let's start with the first question uh, to John. Uh, After a few introductory teasers, COVID really doesn't make its appearance as a character in the book until about halfway through. So take us through the first half of the story, which really takes us up to to December 2019. How did the West and the East evolve to establish the conditions that the virus encountered when it first became a thing in late 2019? Well, firstly, thank you, Bob. Thank you very much, the Commonwealth Club. We're we're delighted to be back here again, albeit virtually. I'm interested by the idea that the president is the elephant in the room and, and you've shown greater reticence than I suspect he would have done under similar circumstances of, of, of keeping him back. And I think you're right to do so. The, the story of the book is one where, firstly, we say that government matters enormously. And as you pointed out, um, various countries have done well and others have gone poorly. Um, America is heading up to 600 deaths for every million people. Germany's around 100 deaths for every million people, so six times better. You go out to the East and Asia, you end up with countries who've got figures of like 20 or 30 or 40 deaths per million, countries like South Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, all those ones. But you, on the, the 
really interesting one is China, which is down around three deaths per million. Now, even if we believe those numbers, which most of us don't, or even if you don't believe them, imagine you multiply them by 10 and you say, well, look, the Chinese, are, they're always telling fibs about numbers and they're hiding 90% of their deaths. Well, they'd still only be around 30 deaths per million, which just by simple mathematics tells you that one of the regimes that most of us rated very lowly has protected its people 20 times better than the United States government has, supposedly the leader of the West. And what that marks, as you said, is, is a reversal of fortune. Because when Thomas Hobbes, who we start part of the book with, um, who was, I think, the first person to ever really write about government in a systemic way, when he sat down and wrote um, his book called Leviathan, 1650, Back then, the gap was completely the opposite way. China was by far the world's most powerful country, had perhaps a quarter to a, um, a quarter to a fifth of the world's economy. It had um, a Mandarin class of civil servants. It had by far the most powerful armies, navies, canal systems, and really the West. And I'm, by the extension of this, America, but certainly Europe. It's like a rather bloody end to the archipelago, um, full of what they probably regarded as rather sort of savage rulers. So all the people you read about in history, like Henry VIII or Elizabeth or James I, or two, they, they would have seemed like rather kind of mundane, um, slightly savage beings from this place where there was warfare pretty much in the whole of Europe every single year of the 17th century, I think except for three years. China, by contrast, had this much more impressive system what happened is the West competed um, with each other, the English and the French, when they saw gunpowder. Um, the Chinese had invented gunpowder, they used it fireworks. The English and French, when they discovered gunpowder, tried to blow each other out of the water. Mm -hmm. They tried to build better governments. And the West basically evolved and, and became a much more competitive thing. And for 500 years, we talk in the book through various revolutions to do with ideas, to do with technology, all these things. We kept on getting better. China ossified. Um, it just didn't compete. It just turned inwards. And that, we think, went on all the way to the 1960s. But then in the 1960s, there was a kind of reversal. Places like Singapore initially, but then other countries began to develop better government and began to come up with better ideas. If you, th if you think of the 1960s, America was putting a man on the moon and millions of Chinese were dying of starvation. Since then, China has gradually got better. Bits of Asia have got enormously better because you don't want to make this argument just about China. It's these other countries which have just soared past America when it comes to the efficacy of government because what happened with COVID wasn't just with COVID. I know you want to come on to that. It, you know, look at things like the quality of schools, the quality of hospitals. All those things are higher there. Look at, just go visit the airports. Um, you leave LAX or leave LaGuardia. Go, you wouldn't go from LaGuardia to Asia, but you get the point. It is really like leaving a different world. The, the, the American airports are shabby. They don't work. You go to the cities. Asian cities are full of clever infrastructure. They have things which tell you exactly where you are and all that sort of stuff. They're intelligent cities. That doesn't happen. So our story is that, yes, um, 500 years ago, um, the West was way behind. Then it overtook the East. But more recently, the East has been coming back. And so I think that would be the, a fair depiction of what the world was like coming up to COVID. Great. Thank you. 
I'm going to violate what I just said and do one follow-up question on that uh, before we get to uh, to the president. Uh, so you you mentioned that you could have written a book like this about the schools or about gun violence or about maybe climate change, although I, you could argue that the East has not done well on that. Um, what was it about COVID that was particularly attractive as the uh, as the defining moment, the crucible to try to understand where these societies were doing well, or in some ways, on, as you say about the West going off the rails. And Adrian, you want to take that or stick with John? Yeah. Why do we stick with let John? John? Let John. Let John yeah. take that. Okay. Continue. Okay. With. I, I prepared myself to sit back and have a nice time, but the yeah. uh, no, that what COVID. The answer is we could have written about those things, um, and because they've been sitting there. But the point about COVID is COVID was like an examination, um, an, an examination in many senses of the word. You know, it was examination. You could use two metaphors. You could talk about an education or, or health. But in education, it's like you, you suddenly give an exam to your students. Um, I think if you had asked us or anyone who was vaguely interested in government, um, who would do well in that exam? I think we would have certainly pinpointed most of the countries that did do pretty well. You know, Germany's recently well run. New Zealand's always been good at these things. You look at these countries in Asia and, you know, these countries were already, as you say, doing better in health and education. So maybe it's not surprising they did, they did as well as they did. We wouldn't have spotted um, that Greece would do as well as it did. And we probably would have said that Singapore would have done even better than it did, but it messed up a bit with immigrant workers. Greece, by contrast, was a fantastic, you know, did fantastically well, partly because it had a good new prime minister and partly because it realized very quickly that its hospitals were in such terrible state that it had to lock down rapidly. Mm -hmm. And that made a big difference. So yes, you, you know, we could have guessed, but we would have got most of it right because government in the West has been atrophying. So it was like an examination, just like an examination you could give one of your, your pupils you set them an exam without much warning and you discover pretty quickly those ones who put the work in and those who haven't. Some of them may turn out to be better at the exam than you might have expected. But on the whole, it was a fairly, it was as we expected. The, the only big difference was I think basically Britain and America did so much worse than even we would have predicted. And I think especially America, you, you, you know, you, where you are in California, you are the epitome of this. You have possibly the most dynamic private sector in the world. If you're looking for the future, I would come to where you are in terms of the private sector. Nobody around the world would ever dream of coming to look at Californian government as the future of anything except as a kind of sort of dysfunction and American government more generally, because it, it's not where it's happening. And you look at what California does brilliantly in the private sector. You look for ideas all the way around the world and you copy them. The public sector, you know, there have been a few improvements recently, but really it's miles behind. And the sort of people who go into the public sector are not on the same level as the ones who go on the private sector. You, you look around the world and you look to see where the best bits of government are. They're sadly not there. And this is what this thing brutally exposed. And there are many people, and I think Adrian and I would probably be in this camp, who've long sat there saying, well, look, it's the private sector that matters. But, you know, really, when COVID struck, it was about whether you had a functioning health system. And, and when you looked at countries, we looked at places like New York and you saw doctors sitting there wearing ski goggles because there was not enough protective equipment. Places like Vietnam did better than America. Now, if you do not have a public system that works, you really run the risk 
as something going badly wrong. You look back through other empires, we talked about China ossifying, and we talked about Greece, which did very well. Athens was doing fantastically well too, it was hit by a plague. Rome was built, brought down in part by two big plagues. Other countries at other different times have reacted better to plagues like the Spanish flu, many countries reacted to that. And that's the reason why we called it a wake up. You know, a, a, an examination, if you're a student, is a wake up. If you fail it as badly as America has, as badly as Donald Trump's administration has, as badly as the whole government system has, you either wake up and say, we've got something wrong with us, we need to fix it, or else you face the kind, same kind of decline which China did many years ago. Yeah. I'll, I'll throw in one friendly amendment, which is that I live in San Francisco. This is the Commonwealth Club of San Francisco. San Francisco has done quite, quite well uh, mm. with a debt You're right. that is you are about, right. yeah. a, a, about one-tenth of the rest of the country, which is sort of the exception that proves the rule, because we actually have reasonably good government, reasonably good compliance by people. And the private sector uh, came in early and sent people home, and people believed the science. Yes, they, they, there was that, that. That is certainly true, and it chipped in. And we do, we do, we do mention briefly California within that, but within the within and San Francisco particularly, but within the general picture of of, of the most advanced country on the planet, um, yeah. it was a tragic dereliction. Just to be really clear, possibly the only country which has done worse than America. So there are two. You could argue that Belgium has done worse, but the other conspicuous failure is the one where both Adrian and I are sitting at the moment, which is Britain. Yeah. So what, this has not been. We're not. We're not lecturing America from, from a position of nationalism. We, we 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 could use a little lecturing. So a little bit would be fine. Uh, let's uh, turn to Adrian. And and uh, I said we would get to to uh, to uh, President Trump. And uh, you write a fair amount about him in some ways as being a symptom of rather than cause of some of the problems. Sure. But just take us through what crossed your mind when you first heard of his illness. And particularly since both of you are from the UK and lived through your prime minister getting COVID, getting sick, going to the intensive care unit. And so you've seen a part of this movie before, although we don't know how this one will turn out. Well, I mean, the first thing one has to say about this is uh, that his situation does seem to be serious. It's not a mild condition. He's gone into hospital. He's 74 years old. Um, and the first and most important thing that comes to mind is to wish him well. You know, whatever you think of his politics, uh, he's a human being. He's 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 got children. He's got family. Um, he's seventy, as I say, seventy-four years old, and we can only wish him a, a rapid and full recovery. Now, as you say, we have been through this um, movie before, and I think in Britain, I mean, it, people were very very shocked when Boris Johnson went down with uh, COVID. And then he went into hospital and then he went into um, intensive care and indeed onto a ventilator. He was very seriously ill. He did recover, but his recovery, I think the impression one gets is it's not been a full recovery, that he seems to be slower, tireder. Um, his memory doesn't seem to be as sharp as it was. Um, his energy levels are certainly what, what they were. He often looks tired. Now, admittedly, he has a, a new baby. Um, so that, that makes us all all tired. But I would say that um, this notion of long COVID, that people suffer the consequences of this of this disease for a significant amount of time, particularly if they're older and overweight, as, as Donald Trump is, is, is very important. So it's not something that's likely to be over with in 10 days. I don't think now he's been hospitalized. So we wish him well, but we also 
uh, think that this will, will, will have a significant impact on his performance you know, for some time to come, I think. Now, what does this show us? I think the most important thing it shows us is that nobody is invulnerable to this, this disease. Um, uh, nobody is above it. Um, that this is somebody who has the best medical uh, care available, who um, has the best medical advice available, and he has succumbed to it. And we have seen throughout America, there was a sort of sense that, that, the, poor, that the rich could buy their way out of this disease. They could insulate themselves from the disease. And that's clearly not true. An airborne disease is something that affects the whole of society, that nobody is rich enough um, to escape from that. So it really does emphasize the sort of communitarian aspects of policy that even in their own interests, people who are rich and privileged need to make sure that the public health system is much better than it is at the moment because we will not be able to fight communicable diseases uh, without making the whole overall system better. And I think COVID, I think it will not be the last of these, uh, of these problems. We'll probably have more coronaviruses. We may have very serious flu epidemics. So this absolutely underlines the urgency of having a structural approach to this problem. And I think it also I would underline the fact that um, whereas the left does tend to say we need a structural approach to problems, the left tends to be in favour of public health, rightly so, in my opinion. The left also in the United States has tended to blame many of America's problems on Donald Trump, on the Republican administration, on a certain set of politicians. And the notion is that if we had different and better politicians, then things would have gone very, very differently. I think that's a shallow approach. Trump has accentuated some problems. Um, the, the administration has not done brilliantly. That's clearly the case. But nevertheless, most of the problems that have been exposed by this COVID crisis are deep structural problems that have nothing to do with, 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 with Trump. You have the lack of a public health system and the fact that the, the, the healthcare is overwhelmingly focused on the problems of older people, on elective surgery, on pay for, pay, pay for performance. Um, it doesn't do enough to, to help the poor, doesn't do enough to help to, to provide basic elementary care. I think that's a structural problem, which pr needs profound structural solutions. Also, many of the tensions uh, in society, which have been exposed both by the coronavirus and by some of Trump's behavior, and I mean by that the, the, the racial tensions, uh, the, the, the riots that seize the country. Again, they are not things that uh, the Republicans or Donald Trump have created. They're very deeply rooted in American society. America has had uh, race riots for, for decades, you know, um, uh, very, very serious ones. So what COVID has done over and over again is to reveal structural problems with the nature of American government, the administ American administrative machine. Um, and that's why we talk about a wake up call. We want people to wake up to the fact that something has been going wrong for really quite a considerable amount of time. And that to fix that takes more than just getting a new president, a new administration. Um, it takes some very, very serious thinking uh, on, on the part of uh, the government, but also some very serious concessions on both people's side. We think that the Republicans have done many things that are that, that, that are wrong, particularly their, their insistence on the tax cuts are the solution to every problem. But we also think that the Democrats have been much too in hoc to public sector unions, the, particularly the teaching unions and including the, 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 the police unions. So a structural approach is the only way really to deal 
with these uh, with, with these problems. So Adrian, I'm gonna follow up with one more yeah. Trump of the moment questions. And then I promise to get back to the themes of the book because I know that's what we're supposed to be talking about, but it, I, I can't resist. You're the political editor of The Economist. Uh, what do you think the impact of, of Trump's illness, assuming he survives and, and, and obviously hope so, uh, but what do you think the political impact of it will be? Because there was a conspiracy theory running around on Twitter last night that maybe he doesn't have it and, and part of the, uh, uh, Boris Johnson did well after he recovered from COVID, he got some sympathy from the British population. So let's assume he has a brief hospitalization, he does fine, comes out of it. What do you think that does to our election? Well, I think that the, the, the Boris Johnson uh, bump was quite brief, actually, from COVID. There was a great outpouring of emotion for about a week, um, and then it died down. And now his popularity ratings are really very, very low. I mean, that's, that's a significant amount of time later. I think it's not going to be good for Trump. I think this, the Twitter theory about him doing delivery is obviously nonsense. But um, I don't think it's good for Trump because it focuses people people's attention on the thing he doesn't want people to be thinking about, which is which is COVID. And it focused pe people's attention on his own personal behaviour, this refusal to wear a mask, this notion that uh, not wearing a mask, not taking this, this pandemic seriously was a sort of test of machismo. All of those things uh, are not good for him. But basically, I think that the number of Americans who are now floating voters who are shiftable is pretty small. It's a very, very polarised situation and opinion is very, very entrenched and deep. Yeah, great, thank you. Uh, so let's, uh, we'll stick with the Trump theme for a second, but, but get back to your book. Um, uh, you write, uh, this will be for John, you write, just like Berlusconi before them, Trump and Boris Johnson are undermining the idea that statescraft is a serious business. Instead, they have treated it as a branch of mass entertainment. So I, one of the things that struck me was there was much of the tension in the book is kind of the classic central control versus individual liberty tension. But then populism sort of rears up uh, its head as a sort of different thread, not exactly on the same axis as individual liberty versus, versus central control. So talk a little bit about the roots of populism, because I think you've made the point that Trump is more symptom uh, than, uh, than, than, than cause and fits into a long lineage of populism uh, popping out at various times and taking over the political debate. Well, you can see it in American history. You have people like um, Brian, people like that appearing at different moments. And it is a concurrent thing that when people are angry and cross, they will look for new solutions. And you saw it in Brexit um, you, and you saw it in Trump. And, and I think the problem about the populists, both the kind of the, the shout of rage that they epitomize, we would argue, you know, part of that is due to issues of equality. And a good chunk of those, we would argue, is, is, is down to just bad government. If you have a government that has $1.6 trillion worth of tax exemptions, virtually all of which go to the well-off in one way or another, and does not provide public health care, um, you have a government that by itself is not doing that much about inequality. But even if you say the inequality is part of globalization or whatever, there were a lot of other frustrations with people just getting a bad deal. And that sort of factored in, I think, to the white, white working, white middle class, white working class, that their anger about um, not getting what they wanted. And, and, and I, we do generally think, I think populism is more of a symptom than a cause. At least to this extent, that that it's you know it shows the frustration 
with a system that is not working. It's somewhat incoherent. It drops towards things. Um, people don't know exactly why they're doing. They're just cross that nothing seems to work. Um, and the problem for the technocratic side is you've either got to start mending government or you've got to start competing with a populist in terms of noise. I think the only thing about populism I would say is I think that this particular crisis, COVID, and you know we looked at this quite carefully in the book, and I should stress, you know, this is a short book. It's it's there to provoke um, thought, thought and make people push through things, but it's pretty obvious um, that if you look at what's happened um, with, with, with the crisis, populists. Um, you you mentioned um, uh, Trump and Johnson. You could also throw in a Bolsonaro. Those are the three main leaders to to get filled with it. Although I know um, Trudeau also did, mm -hmm. but on the whole, you know, populists. This this was a crisis that the populists were just very, very badly um, equipped to deal with. If your main method of doing things is confrontation, um, is causing a fuss, is provoking things, then this was the wrong thing. If you specialize in saying you don't trust experts, this was the wrong thing. And you look at the people who've done well, and again, we, we think the main problems are systemic rather than people. There's no doubt that Trump and Johnson and people like this, who are not famous for being managers at all, have done much, much worse than people like Angela Merkel, who just sit there, listen to the advice, follow it, try and make it work as quickly as possible. Don't suggest you should inject yourself with bleach. Yeah. All those things are true. I think the real, the other tragedy of populism in this is to the extent that populism and nationalism intertwine. I think that is the place where whatever your feelings about Donald Trump, even if you support him, I think this is the place where it is legitimate to criticise him. There, there is no previous crisis on this scale where the West or indeed the globe has been quite so disunited. You, know, you go back to the financial crisis, Europe and America came together pretty well on that in terms of doing things. China even was partly involved in that. In this particular crisis, there has been zero Kind of global leadership for America. Um, the main thing that Trump did was to you know, cut off flights to Europe, which actually he was probably right to do, but he did it with no warning, no consultation with allies. And I think in terms of dealing with COVID, that is the wrong approach. And I think also in the other great theme of this book, dealing with a rising China, that is also a gigantic mistake. You, you know, Trump may be right to identify China as a sort of potential adversary, a, a kind of new Cold War. Well, the last Cold War was won by America because it did two things. It brought in allies and it sung a song of liberty. Trump has brought in zero allies on COVID. He's brought zero allies in in terms of dealing with China. You just have to look at you know, how few people have backed America when it came to Huawei and things like that. But also not singing the song of liberty. There are lots of examples. Many of the people on this call can cite of America being hypocritical when it's talked about freedom or did things like that. It, it, the, the, the truth is that unless you don't sound, sing that song, you don't bring other people in. If you merely say your policy is America first, then I think that is a that that is a, that 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 turns away allies. It turns away potential people who could help America reach its aims. And I think that is actually a quite strong populist nationalist strain. So I think populism has made um, both America and lesser extent Britain has, has, has handicapped both of them in dealing with this. Yeah, it's interesting as you talk about liberty in many ways, that is a Trumpian thread that, you know, keep government away from you. And if you don't want to wear a mask, who's, who, you know, why should, why should government be the boss of you? 
And yet when you talk about singing a song of liberty, the kind of aspirational statue Great of liberty point. come here, they're, they're, they, they take the concept there of liberty is, and they go in different directions. There is a very different, you know, there is something very weird to sing the song of liberty when it comes to people being able to possess firearms. And yet when you meet a dictator to say that's just fine. Um, and, I, right. and I think there is a, you know, these are very obvious contradictions. And it, and it ties, you know, from the view from outside America, these things sort of stand out. You, 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 the hymn of America First sometimes rings a kind of a, a kind of cordant note inside America. It's always discordant outside. Yeah. But the same thing, it's a bit like the whole experience of COVID is that, you know, America may not think people have watched and seen how badly it's done. They have. They have looked and they have drawn lessons. And in many emerging countries, we worry about the, you know, the balance between um, um, autocrats and Democrats yeah. and the lessons that people might wrongly draw from the failure of American democracy when other democracies have done much better. Uh, and you say might wrongly draw, maybe not wrongly draw. Maybe they're making an accurate assessment of, of you know, some real, real and potentially durable problems. I think they're right about the, I'll let Adrian come in, but I think that they're, they're right about, when we look at the issue of democracy versus autocracy, we, one of the other reasons we write the book was, and here I think we were vaguely prescient, is that there was, and it, you can see it happening now in many parts of the world, because people can see that China, for all its faults, has protected people better than America. People around the world at least beginning drawing what we see as a false positive. And the false positive is to say, aha, China is an autocracy, America is a democracy, autocracies are better than democracy. Yeah. And that's just rubbish um, because you look at the, you, it's, it's just rubbish, you look at the numbers, is that China, yes, China's done better than America, but most of the countries which have done well at dealing with this disease have been democracies. And most of the autocracies have been pretty useless. Um, you would not want to be in Russia or Kazakhstan or Iran let alone North Korea during this disease, you'd be much better off in New Zealand, Australia, Germany, Singapore, Japan, all those sort of countries are the ones which have done well and democracies have generally done well. So I would not, um, I would tend to be on the side that actually, you know, liberty is still still quite a useful thing. Yeah, uh, and, and or maybe autocracies are pretty good at this kind of acute threat. You've got to get people to do something very quickly, and it's only going to be time limited. That's a, but, but a that has been true. That I mean, autocracies. China has been good at dealing with that sort of acute threat, and you would have thought that the you know if if autocracy is ever going to be valuable, it is valuable under uh, these sort of conditions of crisis. Uh, but um, again, I'd have two qualifications there. One is that China was very bad initially at mm -hmm. this because the local authorities in Wuhan tried to bury the problem um, because they were frightened of being criticized by the central government. They were frightened of looking incompetent and weak. And because there isn't a free press, because there isn't um, a system of, uh, a, a system of, of, of a free society there, um, that allowed the virus to spread much more rapidly than it needed to spread in the first place. And we could perhaps have closed it down completely. I mean, they got much better at it. Um, but secondly, many, many authority, authoritarian societies have done notably badly um, mm -hmm. at, 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 at controlling COVID. Russia, you know, being a classic example of an autocracy which really hasn't cared about its people that much. It hasn't, it hasn't done very well. But there is something very worrying here. I think in the latest Freedom House figures, um, they say um, about um, 80 out of 180 countries have moved 
more into an autocratic authoritarian direction. So many authoritarian countries are taking uh, the COVID crisis as an excuse in order to cancel democratic rights, cancel freedoms, take power for themselves. So I don't think that's, that they've been very any better, China being a peculiar country in the sense of, of having done well, but not because it's an autocracy in my opinion, but because it's got quite good state capacities. But many, many countries have used this as an excuse to, to snuff out liberties. So let me stick with you on that, Adrian, and move yeah. to a slightly different theme in the book, which is you make the point that the arguments always seem to uh, to move to the left versus right or more versus less government. But yeah. rarely do people talk about the quality of the sure. government and that the East, China to some extent, but I think most vividly Singapore, uh, demonstrates quite vividly what a government looks like to be organized and funded in a way that it actually achieves its goals. Uh, in some ways, irrespective of these sort of uh, left versus right, more versus less, it's just better. So talk, talk us through that a little bit. Sure, we tend to think um, sort of in a knee-jerk way that the debate about government is a debate of more versus less. There are people who want big government, there are people who want small government, and we've been rather frozen in the West for the last 40 years about this debate about the size of government. And much more important, I think, ultimately, is the competence of government, the capacity of the state to deliver its ends. And I really like one of the many things we argue in this book is we've got to shift away from this obsession with size of government, percentage of GDP, to the issue of state capacity. And we argue um, that quite often state capacity might mean more government. Uh, particularly, we argue that public health, the public health system, is absolutely central to fighting not just COVID, but future pandemics, should there be future pandemics, that there is, a, and also there's a moral good in having a public health system. So sometimes you need more government, sometimes you need less government. Um, you need a government that isn't cronyistic in its relationships to, to businesses, uh, a government that doesn't subsidise people who don't like subs, don't need subsidies. And as John said earlier, there's, there's, tri there's $1.6 trillion going um, in benefits to rich people, tax exemptions and the rest of it. So sometimes there's a smaller government, sometimes a bigger government, but always a smarter government. And a smarter government means several things. It means a more focused government. It means a government that's focusing on doing the sort of things that only government can do, that the private sector can't do, um, that can, only can be provided collectively. It also means um, actually a more intelligent government, both in, in, in the sense of smarter, using high tech, using smart machines and the rest of it, but also hiring, recruiting more talented uh, and, uh, and more able people. And the country that we look to here as an example of this is, 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 is Singapore, um, a small country, of course, but an extraordinarily interesting country. Singapore was part of the British Empire, uh, basically uh, Britain's rubber plantation um, with a very, very low standard of living when it was part of our empire. Uh, it now has a higher standard of living than the United Kingdom. It has higher life expectancies than the United Kingdom. It has um, better educational standards than the United Kingdom. It has, I think, in Rattles College, probably the best school in the world. I think it costs $10 a month to send your child to Raffles College, and it has a higher entrance rate to Harvard, I think, than any other institution in the country. It's an extraordinarily uh, successful college. So, um, and what's, what Singapore has done is to take various tenets of Western liberalism 
and to challenge them. We are democracies. Um, they are a political meritocracy, which sort of limits the franchise or limits the sort of things that people can vote on. We have quite an expansive welfare state. American men think it has an expansive welfare state, but the way it treats elderly people, the social security system is actually quite generous by, by global standards. It, of course, has universal uh, education. The Singaporeans have restraints on universalities. It's, even for school education, you have to pay a little bit to go to the doctor. You have to pay a little bit. You know, not a lot, but a little bit. So nothing's free. And Lee Kuan Yew, who set up this extraordinary country, said that he didn't want an all-you-can-eat buffet. Uh, he wanted everybody to sort of know that there was a cost to, to things. So, um, and the, the Western state has tend to, tended to, to, to be very restrained when it comes to economic intervention. Uh, certainly the Anglo-Saxon countries have. Uh, again, Singapore has been very interventionist. It's always tried to nudge the economy into what they regard as higher value added areas. So from manufacturing to services, to, to, to high tech, to pharmaceuticals and things like that. So it's a different conception of the state from the Anglo-Saxon conception of the state. Uh, also very keen on recruiting the very highest quality people into government. They haven't denigrated government. They think that government is an absolutely vital thing. So they're willing to pay people a lot of money. I think the head of the, the, the civil service gets paid in excess of a million dollars a year. Teachers get paid a lot. But the downside is that people get sacked very, if they don't perform, if they don't shake up, they're kicked out. So it's a very meritocratic, very um, competitive approach to government, which is challenging some of, some of the things which we hold most dear. And one of the things I think is going on in the world is that China has looked very carefully at Singapore and is beginning and is trying to imitate what Singapore is doing. So the conventional story of China, which has got some truth in it, is that it's an autocracy, that it's very thuggish, that it clamps down on freedom. Um, all of that is true. And if that was the only thing that was true, I would think that China's future is pretty grim. But also there's another side, side to China, which is the side which selects very good people and puts them into government, gives them performance measures to make sure that they're <clears throat> doing well, has a very, very competitive, again, meritocratic educational system, one of the, the most, the, you know, one of the most formidable in the world. It's been building universities at an incredible rate, coming from nothing, really, in, in, in many ways. So it's the possibility that China could become a big Singapore, I think should really, really terrify the West. And the West should say, wait a minute, if this is even possibly true, we've really got to get our act together because a big Singapore would be an extraordinarily powerful thing. Yeah. Uh, John, uh, Adrian mentioned the role of technology and we've had a few of the questioners ask about the role of technology in this. The technology obviously becomes the site of national competition if you think back to, to Sputnik and uh, nuclear weapons and all of those those things. Um, now, because of the information technology revolution, uh, because of social media, it has a different flavor as you layer in technology into this mix of what makes a country great. So tell us how you think that through. Well, I think two things. One, if you look at really successful um, applications of public services, a lot of them have very little to do with technology. Um, again, you, you look at why, why a Singaporean and we're using Singapore, it applies to most Asian countries. Why are their schools and hospitals so much better than America's? Well, it's pretty simple, especially schools, is that they 
pay good teachers more and they sack bad teachers. Now, there is no great technology to that. Why was you, you, you look at, say, just to give you a, a rather kind of shocking statistic, you have Seoul, which has um, roughly the same amount of inhabitants, the capital of South Korea has the same number of inhabitants as London or New York. You look at the casualties from COVID, uh, New York is running at 20, above 20,000. New York is above 6,000 and Seoul is about five dozen. And you can try and depict this down to some sort of consensual thing or to the use of technology or whatever. It, it's, it's, it's rubbish. Um, you know, Seoul is a very busy place full of subways, teeming streets. It's a place that produced Parasite, which won the Oscar last year. It's got huge nightclubs. It produces K-pop, which many of our children listen to. It, it's not a kind of, um, it's not a quiet place at all. But it did just quite simple things like setting up testing things and do, doing many of the basic things. So a lot of the, the basic things you need to do with government have nothing to do with technology. That's part one. However, part two, um, there is no doubt at all that there is one of the ways in which these new countries are getting ahead is their use of technology. And what's particularly shocking, I think, about the United States is you look at the sort of technology that proliferates the federal sector. And, and, and it's, it's a mixture between technology and people. To give you, I'll just give you two statistics. You look at the Department of Health. I think 40% of the, of the software systems there are legacy ones. They're too old to support. They come from a distant age. And that backs into the second issue. There are, I think it's five times more people over 60 working in the tech departments of the federal, Express, of the federal um, government. There are people under 30. It, that has to be wrong. None of the companies that operate so profitably close to you or remotely close to those numbers. They're in fact, they're exactly the opposite. Yeah. And what has happened is that the, 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 there's been an inability to introduce technology. You look at the ways that, there's an interesting authoritarian technological argument. You go to Shanghai um, and you get on a subway car and it'll take your phone. And so if someone else on the subway car gets um, uh, COVID, they'll then track you down how grim and nasty and totalitarian um, we, we probably might, many of us might think that's not a great idea. But really, um, it's not an argument that many people in America, nobody in New York can have that argument because they've only just got around to the most crude version of kind of cashless ticket buying. Mm -hmm. None of the technology in the public sector is able to do it. China has the technology, which means you, if you get on a subway system, they can actually tell it car by car. Um, most bits of the West pub subway things are just miles behind. You, you've got things in Asia where they look at different versions of you know, monitoring traffic by having sort of sensors and light posts. They're not, they're, not, they're not particularly dramatic things, but just miles ahead of what America has at the moment. And, and I think the, if you want to understand, we try to look quite hard as why is America the country that leads the world in technology? So, so utterly crap, to use a technical term, is it? in the public sector, give or take a bit of stuff on defense. And the underlying reason actually, strangely enough, is really a lot to do with entitlements. If you have so much money in the federal budget, shunted off to the old, not to the poor, the money, entitled money doesn't go to the poor in America, it goes to the old and the rich. People like Warren Buffett and Bruce Springsteen are picking up social security even whilst we're sitting here. Um, there isn't, that money actually ends up with both the useless bridges, the unmended highway, freeways, 
but also ends up with why the, why the tech thing is so low. Nobody has got the money in the American government to go to completely renew the tech systems, which any company would do, because it's cheaper just to hang on to the old staff and just make everything just about work for another year. It's, you know, in any other system, you would be sacking the CEO who did this. Yeah. You almost lost me there when you took on Bruce Springsteen, but I'll uh, I'll forgive it. He's, he's old enough to collect social security. <laughs> I watched that, that we also think it's wrong that Mick Jagger collects it here. Or indeed, yeah, Bruce, to be honest, it's wrong that Adrian and I should get it. You know, the, the, the whole point about it's wrong. Yeah. He's worked uh, hard with Bruce Springsteen, but he does not need social security. And Warren exactly, Buffett is a exactly great man. Right. He doesn't need it right. either. Adrian, let's uh, toggle back to COVID for a second. Uh, in the book, you describe it as a massive stress test of the West and, and make sure. a point we are failing it in a way. But it, it seems to me that there, there is something unique about Trump and the current incarnation of the Republican Party. I mean, and I'm trying to fantasize a world where COVID happened or under Obama or even under a President Romney. So are you confident that this really is systemic and in you know baked into the politics and country and, and 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 history now of the last generation of the country or is there something very specific about the current moment and the current party and and the current leader well i think president trump did some very very odd things um he was uh, a very inconsistent leader i think what you need during a pandemic like this is a leader who takes charge who operates very quickly who has a consistent message which is in line with the message of scientists um and which he keeps repeating and reinforcing on masks, on social distancing, and the rest of it. And Donald Trump did none of those things. And so that is, uh, you know, that, that, that is a significant problem that is down to him. But nevertheless, I would say that there's something deeper going on that, um, that, that, that COVID has expressed. And let's you know, look, at, look, at, look at Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson, went, he was slow at first, but he has since then gone along entirely with what the scientists have said. He's been fairly consistent. Um, he's been, as it were, mature, politically mature in the way he's, he's dealt with this issue, very different from Trump. And still, Britain has had um, very, very serious problems. Um, or if you look at New York, New York is a city that's run by a Democratic mayor, Bill de Blasio. Um, and de Blasio has done, I think, singularly badly um, uh, in handling COVID. I think, as John was saying, 20... More than twenty million, uh, more than twenty thousand people uh, have died in New York, compared with a, a, a dozen or so in Seoul. Um, New York, in fact, one of the worst handled um, COVID, COVID epidemics in, in in any of major city in the world. And I think it's, it's I do think it's it's, it's structural and uh, structural in terms of weak institutions, but also structural in terms of the way that the the states, the political system works. So you have a high degree of polarization. That's, that's not something that was created by Trump. It's something that produced Trump, but it also existed under Obama. Um, and you have two things in America which are particularly weird, I think. One is very, very low levels of trust in institutions. Um, so that people think that institutions are somehow almost conspiracies against the individual. And secondly, People don't don't live in the in the same reality. Mm. Um, if you listen to MSNBC and then listen to Fox, it's not that these are people with different views of of, of an agreed upon world. These mm. are people who live in different worlds. They have a completely different sense of uh, of what's real. And again, I think that was true during the Obama administ uh, administration. It's been getting worse 
over the years, but it reflects something very, very deep. And I think if we get um, a, a Biden presidency, which is very likely, if you have a period of a sort of liberal overreach that matches the, the conservative Trump overreach that we've just had, you will get uh, an intensification of polarization, an intensification of these two, two, two realities and a, and a further erosion of, uh, of, uh, of trust. I think you have to be, as it were, tough on the causes of Trumpism. Why is it that so many people are, are, are disillusioned with the American society? And I think driving that disillusionment and driving the poor economic productivity growth is, is poor government, poor institutions, a badly designed healthcare system, very mediocre um, schools, uh, a system which allocates vast resources to elite universities, but not enough to community colleges and to, and to, and to technical and vocational education. Again, systematic things have created uh, poor leadership, not poor leadership created systematic things. Yeah, thank you. John, one, one of the things that struck me as I read the book was that uh, you can come away, as if you read about the Roman Empire, for example, you can come away just thinking that there is this inexorable uh, cyclicness, I'm not sure if that's a word, to <laughs> the rise and fall of empires, that, that you know, they, they plant the seeds of their own destruction, that the New Deal and the Great Society were necessary and were great successes in many ways, but began a movement toward more and more entitlements, larger government, which creates a reaction, which creates the polarization that Adrian just described. So we'll get to your solutions in a second, but it, I found that part very depressing because it makes you wonder whether this is just, we were at the top of the roller coaster, and the next thing that happens inevitably is you go down. Well, I, th I think that's the answer is um, that there is a degree of truth in that, but it is not the whole truth. I mean, you mentioned Rome, that Rome had emperors under whom it looked possible that it could turn around, people like Diocletian. It still had many, many advantages. America has astounding advantages over other places. Um, you know, if it can fix its public sector, it's fine. And, I, and I've, I, I've sort of learned in these things never um, to underestimate you know, the ability of um, individuals to change. Um, I'll give you one example from just around the corner from where you are, is in 1980, as a, a, I think I may have told the story in this club before, but as a, a young um, student on my gap year in between um, school and university, I was in San Francisco and went to stay with, an, uh, with, a, with a friend whose um, cousin, an old man called Anthony Fisher, used to live um, in the middle of San Francisco. And he took us off to go and have a, a sauna with a man called Milton, it was the same year that Margaret Thatcher had come to power. And he asked me, age 18, what, um, what, what, what had I met Margaret Thatcher? And I said, no. He then went, this kind of small, crazy man on this diatribe about how Margaret Thatcher was going to change Britain. She was going to privatise things. She was going to introduce monetarism. She was going to beat up the unions. And I just sat there and Adrian would have been exactly the same. You know, we'd grown up in a place where you were taught by candlelight because the unions were on strike. And the idea that Britain was in terminal decline was more or less set for us. Um, and I went later that um, holiday to go and watch the Grateful Dead in concert. And nothing um, that they did was half as psychedelic as this lunatic Milton in the shower. Um, in the sauna, the shower would be even weird. Yes. And I then went... I then went I then went back to Britain and discovered, I turned on my television, and there was this man, Milton, everywhere. 
And it was Milton Friedman and the ideas that he pushed, the things that Thatcher did, they did change Britain. Again, as we say, you know, Britain had more things to do. It, good leadership can make a dramatic difference if it's combined with ideas and new technology. Um, it doesn't guarantee everything, but it is possible to change. And you know, America is a place you look back what happened in the progressive era, you look at other times where America has looked as if it's heading in the wrong direction and just righted itself. Well, this is your chance. And we are um, people who cleverly buy this book will be able to help enable that writing, which is which is which is sorely needed. Well, let me give you both the chance to take us through how we get ourselves out of this mess. And you talk in the end of, uh, I think, 13 changes and reforms, uh, all of which, as I was reading them, seem pretty spiffy and all of which seem like fairly heavy lifts in terms of our current moment and how we get to uh, get to Nirvana. So why don't you take us through several of the ones that you think are the most important and, uh, and then maybe tell us a little bit about what you think uh, the pathway to achieving them might be. Well, what we did in this book, what we did in this book was to invent uh, a, a figure who we call Bill Lincoln. And Bill Lincoln is essentially a composite of the two great liberal reformers of the 19th century. I, William Gladstone, the prime minister, four times prime minister of Great Britain and Abraham Lincoln. Uh, and the reason we did this is we wanted to find uh, two figures who'd been very, very strikingly good at government reform, particularly Gladstone, I think, when it comes to government reform, and at changing the nature of their countries. Um, and we gave this imaginary figure, uh, Bill Lincoln, um, one constraint on what he could do, and that is that he was only allowed to use um, ideas that had already worked in some country somewhere in the world. So we didn't say, we didn't say just let's have a pie in the sky uh, list of, uh, 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 of revolutionary ideas that would make the world wonderful or America wonderful. Uh, we said, let's just take things that have worked elsewhere uh, and let's try and uh, create a composite of them. And basically what they're all designed to do is to create a, a, a state system which is smarter, not bigger or smaller, but smarter, more focused, more, more, more dedicated to delivering what only government can deliver. So to give you a sense of some of the things we want, we, we want to do, we talk about the case for moving towards a German style or a Canadian style health system based on an insurance system. Um, we talk about the need, the, the, the need to simplify government. At the moment, you have a government in which the presumption is that people who, are in, uh, who have government jobs are going to do something wrong. So you need all sorts of rules to prevent them from doing something wrong. So you have to have endless levels of control um, to, to make sure that they don't pilfer or, do, 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 or, or, or abuse the system. We said, well, let's actually assume that they're probably wanting to do the right thing and give them some sort of freedom to do the right thing. We talk about um, uh, getting rid of um, a lot of tax exemptions, of course. Uh, we talk about getting rid of um, a lot of subsidies, where what America is moving towards is a system of crony capitalism. We talk about the case for meritocracy. Uh, America has an extraordinary system of political appointments, particularly of ambassadorships, many of which are actually essentially purchased for, for, in, in return for money. That's something that reminds us of mid-19th century Britain. I mean, we would get rid of that system of, of crony capitalism, of purchasing, and under, under Donald Trump, you've had a lot of 
uh, federal government positions simply unfilled. Um, so we, we also argue that we should admire government, not think that government is the problem rather than the solution, but it's, the, it's something that is vital. It's the difference during a pandemic between living and dying. So raise the status of government. And we also talk about the idea of national service, not in the notion of a military national service, but of saying that everybody um, across the population should spend a certain amount of time doing non-military service for their country. And we do this partly because I think it would provide government with educated, able young people um, and help them to fix a lot of problems, but also because we get the sense that there is a social disintegration going on, that poor people don't meet rich people, that educated people don't meet uneducated people, that the only time somebody who's sort of a college-bound young, young person will meet a member of the working classes is when they come and deliver their Amazon package to them. You know, and we say that actually something that would get all the, uh, the whole of society working together for common purposes uh, um, would be a, a remarkable thing to do. So there's a, there's a long list. We don't think that all of them um, are achievable, but we do think that the fundamental idea that we want to get along is that government is not a problem. It's essential. And it's something that should be treated with respect and, and, and treat taken and taken much more seriously than America takes it at the moment. So, uh, thank you. Um, <laughs> I guess part of the conceit there that immediately strikes me as being challenging in the United States is the idea that we would look to other countries for answers. Uh, yeah. you know, I spent a fair amount of time in Singapore. One of the bits of the secret sauce in Singapore is they are completely agnostic as to where they find an answer. It might be from China, it might be from, from California, it might be from Canada, and they go there to figure it out. And the other example that's quite personal for me is I was asked to lead a commission for the National Health Service to help them think about the adoption of digital tools a few years ago. And can you imagine in the United States asking a foreigner to come to the United States and lead a commission to advise the country on anything? It's, hmm. it's just not, it's not in our DNA to say somebody may have figured this out in ways that we haven't. Do you have any hope that that can happen? But then during the progressive era, they did look a lot to examples from other countries. And the, the, the very phrase, the great society, later on, but the great society was actually a phase, phrase invented by a British, uh, a British Fabian socialist called, uh, called Graham Wallace, who taught at the LSE. So I think that there has been a tradition of bringing in ideas from, from abroad. I think it's, it's a sign of a certain decay that yeah. America is yes. too introspective at the That's, moment. And, and of course, it would be the lead on Fox News if we, if we did that. Uh, John, let me give you the hardest thing as we probably the last question, but uh, Adrian just ticked off a whole bunch of things that all sound pretty wonderful. Uh, what's your level of hope that we can do that? And uh, you know, are there conditions? Are there, you know, what, 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 push, what gets us in that direction? Is it, do you think COVID can be the stimulus to say, we really screwed this one up royally and we have to take this as a wake up call, as you say in the title? Well, that's the hope. I mean, but, you know, by definition, a wake up call says, hey, you're asleep, <laughs> move. So it's not as if, it's not, at least, you know, we, we can, so it's not as if we're saying this is about, we're sure this is about to happen, otherwise we wouldn't have written the book. Um, but we are telling people, including audiences like this, something you know dramatic is changing and is not at this moment going the right direction for most of the things that you care about. 
Um, so that 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 is one thing. What are the constituencies from which change could come? One big constituency, which you sort of alluded to, is it, it, in, I suppose indirectly, is kind of business. In business, all the things you've just described are totally normal. And what has happened, I think, during COVID is I think it's the first time I've really seen business in America, particularly, wake up to both how vital government is and how useless it is at both at the same time. And we talked to the head of one of America's biggest companies who sort of, he was generally struck by the fact that this disease broke out in Asia. He at the time thought, and his company thought it would probably remain in Asia. He got that wrong. But all the same, by kind of February, you know, that this is, I am no longer editor of The Economist where Adrian works, but, you know, The, the Economist had on its cover that COVID goes global. That's still like sort of five, six weeks before America does anything. <laughs> it's, it's a very long, you know, companies, his company began to react. So I think, and, and I think business people generally own one category. I think this, the second reason for hope for change is another group, um, which is nationalists. If you look back through the history of government, the thing which normally really prompts people to change, I mentioned earlier with the British and the French using gunpowder to blow each other out of the water, the thing which really prompts them to change is competition. Um, you look at the welfare state that we all love and admire. Well, it, there were several factors why it came about. It was partly, as I, I said, you know, it's people worried about what was happening in the slums of London and its possible effect on richer people, so they wanted to improve it. It was partly, yes, some people who were genuinely concerned about making the poor have a better life. But a massive reason for it was that places like Britain and France, and even America to some extent, were frightened of Germany. They thought Germany has a better army, it's got better things. We need to start making our people sort of fitter and stronger. And it, that that's not something that people read about in the textbooks. It's absolutely true. It's the reason why people like Winston Churchill and Elton style conservative wanted to spend money on poor people being educated because he wanted them to be able to fight in the army and be quite good at it. Um, I, I think there is a similar thing now as it becomes more and more obvious about the gap between America and China in some of these respects. I think many um, patriotic Americans, and that's a very big category of people, will begin to care about it. I think America feels there is a difference between China and the way China is perceived in Europe and America. In, in Europe, China is seen as a kind of issue, as an irritant sometimes, but you are number one. Um, and I think you feel the dragon's breath on your shoulder. And what COVID is saying is that the dragon's breath is getting incredibly close. So do something about it. So sort of patriots come nationalists as another strand, business people are one. And so lastly, there are things like mayors and things like that, where people, you mentioned how well San Francisco does some things. Well, you, you can copy. And it doesn't strike me as so completely bananas are going to do it. And, and then the very last one is just money. <laughs> um, you, you, look at, you look at most governments, once they run out of money, then they have to start doing things. And yeah. that forces you to make choices. We quote in our book um, a character from Hemingway, who's asked, how did he go bankrupt? And he said, it's two ways, um, character asked, he says two ways, one, first gradually, and then quickly. And that tends to be it. At the moment, the markets are lending every government in the West a lot of money. But at some point, um, they're gonna realize that you're lending something that doesn't work is not necessarily a good idea. And then that is where things will get much tougher. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. That was uh, it's very, uh, very thought provoking as uh, thinking about nationalism as potentially 
syncing up with our competitive juices. If you watch, you know, the way we follow football and whether it could lead to something productive, which is we're in trouble, we have to get our act back together or something destructive. And, and I think we're in the nationalism leading to something destructive now. And the hope mm. is that can be turned around. So with that, we need to close. Let me uh, close by thanking our uh, speakers, John Micklethwaite, Editor-in-Chief of Bloomberg News, and Adrian Wildridge, Political Editor of The Economist, who are co-authors of the terrific new book, The Wake Up Call, Why the Pandemic Has Exposed the Weaknesses of the West and How to Fix It. The, the, the exposing of the weaknesses is very clear. The how to fix it, I'm hopeful that we can get it right. And I think you've given us a, a path to try to do that. Uh, you can get their book at your local bookstore and of course online. Uh, thank you to our viewing audience. If you'd like to watch more programs or to support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making virtual programming, please visit the CommonwealthClub.org. Uh, Again, I'm Dr. Bob Wachter, uh, Chair of the Department of Medicine at University of California, San Francisco. It's been an honor to moderate this session, and this concludes this program of the Commonwealth Club of California. Thank you, and uh, everyone, please stay safe. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.